All right, so today's lecture is going to be on aesthetics, on beauty, some of which, uh, some of you are an expert on that. Am I right? Interesting. All right, well, here we go. As Christians, we believe in absolutes because there is a God, therefore there are absolute standards. We know, of course, that there's an absolute standard of right and wrong, and that absolute standard of right and wrong is revealed to us where? God's law in the Bible, that's right. Is there an absolute standard of truth and falsehood? Yes. And who is the ultimate truth? God. He is the truth, and everything that He says is truth. Two plus two equals four, not five. Because there's absolute truth. Adultery is bad. Marriage is good because there is absolute goodness. But not only is there absolute truth and absolute goodness, there is also absolute beauty. And this is where it gets interesting. This is probably where you have not thought about things quite as much. There is absolute beauty. That means there are objective standards whereby you can measure whether a piece of art is more or less beautiful. Some songs are more beautiful than other songs. Some people are more beautiful than other people. Some, uh, <clears throat> some, uh, some pieces of art are more beautiful than other pieces of art. Some movies are more beautiful than other movies. There are objective standards to beauty. That's why you might be surprised. You can cut through right here. You might have been surprised when you started your art class. Do you all have your art? Do you have your pieces in there? You might have been surprised at how many objective standards there were um, to, to be able to grade you. Some of the things you're being graded on are measurements, proportion, balance, um, presentation. There's a lot of objective ways to evaluate beauty. Now, we're only human, and so we don't, we're not able to know absolute beauty absolutely. We only, we only can know what we've learned over you know, church history and through tradition and through reason and from the scriptures. So we're not always exactly right. And, and sin, of course, clouds the picture. Just as sin clouds the truth and sin clouds goodness, well, sin makes art ugly. People who are living in rebellion are uglier than people who are living in obedience to God's standards of beauty. That's why Christian girls are the most beautiful, because they uh, live according to the standards of God's objective beauty, unless they have a rebellious streak or they're acting out against their parents or something like that. Um, that's why we oftentimes around here say that liberals take ugly pills. It's a, it's a metaphor for saying they violate the objective standards of beauty with their hair, with their face, with their clothing, and make themselves less pretty. And that goes along with their worldview because they, live, they have a worldview of rebellion. Make sense? That's why liberals or apostates or rebellious people make ugly movies and ugly art. And, and their art is beautiful only when they borrow from God's creation order and from his laws of beauty. Make sense? All right. So let's define um, beauty real quick. What does it mean to be beautiful? Or what is beauty? Describe some things for me, if you will, that are Beautiful. A bride on her wedding day. All right, that's your first one. Give me another one. A sunset. Are some sunsets more beautiful than other sunsets? Yes, objectively beautiful? 
If you showed us three sunsets, and in your mind, one was clearly more beautiful than the others, do you think most of the time we would all agree? Yeah, unless we were elevating some aspect of beauty that we wanted to uh, emphasize at that particular moment. You know, there are different schools of art that emphasize different aspects of beauty, like a, a realistic art versus an impressionistic art is going to emphasize different you know, aspects or different standards. But generally speaking, we could all pick out the most beautiful sunset out of three. All right, uh, what else is beautiful? Some chickens. Some chickens are more beautiful than others. Would you say some chickens are objectively ugly? Yes. Right. They violate all the standards of beauty. That's right. The hairless chicken, I would say, or the featherless chicken is pretty ugly. Um, Jackson. The Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa. That's right. Beautiful. That's right. Yes. Nature. Nature. But isn't it true that some aspects of nature are intrinsically, objectively ugly on purpose? Some aspects of nature provoke awe. Others provoke a sense of warmth and nostalgia. Right? What's going on there? But like, what is beautiful? When we say it is beautiful, what does that mean? What is happening? Well, this is the definition for you. To be beautiful is to be pleasing to the senses. To be pleasing to the senses. And of course, you have the sense of touch, taste, smell, sight, hearing. So beautiful music is pleasing to the to the ears and a beautiful piece of art or a sunset is pleasing to the eyes or um, a beautiful noise is pleasing to the ears like the the roar of waves right a, a beautiful smell not like the smell that's in this room usually is pleasing to to the nose it's a pleasing aroma you could say technically in a technical sense you could say it's a beautiful smell you smell beautifully I'm saying to no one in particular. Um, So that's what it means to be beautiful. It is pleasing to the senses. Another way of saying that even more technically is to say aesthetically pleasing. Have you ever heard the word aesthetically? That's aesthetically pleasing. It has good aesthetics. A lot of times when you, uh, once y'all get married and you start shopping for a house, you'll see that the women want a house that is aesthetically pleasing. But the guys very oftentimes want a house that is not necessarily objectively beautiful, but is objectively true in the sense that it's plumbing works and the electrical works. Whereas the women sometimes want it to be charming or cute or have curb appeal, aesthetically pleasing. Now, some, some women, <coughs> if they know their husband's not much of a handyman, they want to look at the, the truth and the goodness of the situation as well. All right? But that's um, uh, very important to us, and, and, um, <clears throat> and so that's why we're talking about it. Um, so some things, if there is a standard of beauty, that means some things are more aesthetically pleasing, more beautiful than others, right? And that standard by which we compare and contrast things, that standard, where does it come from? Well, that's where it is partially revealed, It's revealed in the Bible, and it's also revealed in nature through special and natural revelation, but it originates from God, of course, who is the source of all beauty. All right? So let's practice. And uh, who is it that um, analyzes the objective beauty of a piece of art, uh, evaluating according to various standards of 
art. What would you call that person? Does anyone know? Well, an artist creates the art, but who is it that would sit back and evaluate the art? A critic, yeah, an art critic, an art critic. So we're going to be art critics just for a second here. And I, I find this really fun. Um, and, and, uh, and maybe we'll go outside later in class and do it for real. But I want you to think of two trees, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe the trees for you. And, uh, and, I, and I want you to be the art critics. Of course, in this case, we are, we are analyzing the art. Critic doesn't mean criticize. It means evaluate. We're analyzing or evaluating the art of God who invented the tree, but also the art of the, the, um, the name, what's the uh, tree scientist called? An arboretum? Arbor- 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 Arborist, that's right. You You're also evaluating the art of the arborist or the gardener. Because you can obviously trim trees to make them more aesthetically pleasing. Right? You can cultivate trees to make them more aesthetically pleasing. You can create hybrids that are more aesthetically pleasing than others. So, you, um, so let's think of a, a maple tree. Y'all are you know, familiar with the maple leaf? Um, and it's the fall in Virginia where they have four seasons. The maple trees look beautiful here, but they're even more beautiful where, at different latitudes. So can you picture the maple tree in your mind? Fall colors. And um, all right, good. Let's start with that. It's objectively beautiful. I think everyone would agree with that, right? But why is it objectively beautiful? What about it makes us go, wow, that is such a beautiful tree. That, seeing that tree brings pleasure to my eyes. It's beautiful. What about it? Colors. Okay, the colors. But every tree has colors, right? Orange and red are more pleasing than green? I think, I think it's... I mean, we always see green. We always see green. So, yes, color, but also notice she's, she's picking up on the idea of variety, right? Or, um, or uniqueness. So something that's unique brings a level of pleasure. Something that has variety brings a level of pleasure. So the variety of colors, and especially fall colors on a maple in Virginia, you're going to have bronze and brown and gold and red and auburn, all of those things. What else about the maple tree? <coughs> yes? Yeah, it, because of the various colors, you have a contrast with the green of other trees or perhaps the blue of the uh, of the sky, you have a contrast that another tree may not have. What else? It smells different than the trees you're uh, used to smell. Maybe maybe the flowers ha- have a pleasant aroma. That's good. Think about it now as an art critic, as a critic of trees and the work of arborists and gardeners. You're comparing it with other potential trees. So you have to think about a maple as compared to other trees, and, and that helps you evaluate its artistic quality. Yes, Marie. Um, the leaves on the ground, they, like, they crunch. I like crunch. Oh, as the leaves fall on the ground before the first rain, I love the first fall of the leaves before the first rain because the leaves are light and fluffy and, they, and they're kind of, uh, and the wind blows them and they shimmer and they, and they twist and they crunch. So that's pleasing to the, uh, pleasing to the, to the uh, sense of touch. It's got a tactile um, beauty to it. Very good. That's great. What about the leaves of the trees as the wind blows it? Maple leaves, how would you describe their interaction with the wind? 
There's a, there's a noise that is calming and soothing, and, but they, they kind of fritter and flutter back and forth like butterflies. If, if you've ever seen the, um, uh, what's the, the, uh, the tree that's very common up in the higher altitudes of, California, of uh, Colorado, and they name, um, there's towns named after it. Huh? No, I can't think of it right now. But there, but the leaves do. The leaves uh, shake back and forth. The tree, the name of the tree comes from that aspect of it. It's a quaking aspen. A quaking aspen. That's right. The leaves quake like they're like they're terrified. They twist back and forth like this. And when they twist, one side of the leaf is one color green, and the other side is another color green. So you get this variety. It's really cool. It's really cool. Quaking aspens. Plus the bark is like a, a very unique um, color. <clears throat> okay, so now what about the what about the size and the and the drama or the the awe of the maple tree? Would you say in comparison with the redwood or the live oak that the maple is majestic? Or is it more dainty and charming? Yeah, it's more dainty. It's more charming. Like it, it's not necessarily as uh, mighty and majestic as the live oak, right? Good, Benjamin. You have another. Uh, it looks almost like an explosion of color. Yeah, it, there's a lot of variety with the color. That's good. Now, a live oak. We're continuing. We're critics of of the gardener, the arborist, and, and God. Art critics um, pointing out the standards of beauty here. Is everyone in the back paying attention? All right, the live oak now. What about its leaves? Are y'all familiar? Hopefully you know what the, the, the uh, state tree is. No, that's the magnolia. Hopefully you know the big giant tree that everyone loves around here, the live oak. Should be. Uh, what about the leaves? Dark green, all year round. Not a lot of variety, not a lot of uniqueness. Okay. But what is, what is beautiful about those trees? Yes, Marie. They 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 provide shade. That's good. It's very useful. And they do block out the sun so that grass can't grow underneath them. Yes. It's very awe-striking when you walk right under one and look up and see how tall it is. Yeah, that's it's awe-inspiring. It produces a sense of wonder and awe, especially a two three hundred year old one that's has a massive trunk and the branches uh, swoop out. But also, you know how the branches, the way the branches contrast with the flat ground. So you have the flat ground and you have the swooping arcs of the branches creates a visual variety of its own. So it's not a variety of color necessarily, but there's an architectural variety um, when you see the live oak, which is another, another standard of beauty, another standard of beauty. Yes. Could, could the idea of what its history is yeah, the story behind it is another form of art. Absolutely. The story behind it would be art. All right, that's good. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> what is the art and science of evaluating beauty according to the standards revealed in God's Word and in nature? What do we call that art and science? Aesthetics. The art and science of aesthetics. That's a, one way to say it. Or you might just say art, right? Art would be fine as well. All right, but so now let's get into the actual standards, though. Let's get into the actual standards. What makes something aesthetically pleasing? What makes it beautiful to the eyes, the ears, the nose, the, the touch? 
Um, I'm going to actually tell you. I'm not asking on this particular one. Um, What makes it actually beautiful? Well, the Bible doesn't um, say uh, as much about the standards of beauty as it does about the standards of goodness and truth. But it does say quite a bit. It does say quite a bit. And and one of them is found in the book of Romans. It says that you can... See God in a sense. You can know God and certain attributes of God and certain characteristics of God by examining the world that is created. So the character and the attributes of God can be clearly seen through the things which He made. So if if I were to create a piece of art, you could know me in a sense through that art. You know what I mean? If you went to someone's home and they were a, a gardener or they were an interior decorator and their home was cluttered, it was cute and charming and it evoked feelings of warmth and nostalgia, but it was a little cluttered, right? And a, and a little too diverse and not a lot of moderation. You could know a little bit about that person's personality, couldn't you? You can go into someone's home and know a bit about their personality. Whereas if you went into a home and the, the interior decorator, you know, hopefully is the mom usually. It's minimalistic. There's not a lot of variety. There's a, all the walls are the same color. All the furnitures are the same. The floor is all the same. And it's very tidy and very orderly. You could know a little bit about that person's characteristics. And each home could be beautiful in its own way, in, in the sense that it can have strengths and weaknesses. But what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that as you look through that home... You can, you can see the, the creator of that art. And, and the, the, the same is true, the book of Romans says, as, as you see through creation with your senses, you can, in a sense, see God, see the characteristics and the attributes of God mediated to you through the things which he has made, his artwork. His creation is his masterpiece. The songs, right? The sounds, the visual displays, the tactile impressions, all of that are artistic renderings communicating to you a little about God. And, and, and so the art has what's called, write this down, communicable attributes. Communicable attributes. Attributes of God which are communicated, they are communicable, communicated through the things which He has made. And you can see God through the things that he made. You can see the attributes and the characteristics of God. Just as you can see an orderly home, you can see the person that owns the home is orderly. Or a chaotic home, you can see that the person who owns the home is chaotic. Or they're very busy, right? Make sense? So when we say that something is beautiful, when we say that something is pleasing, I would submit to you that what we are seeing is... Aspects, communicable aspects of God, who is the ultimate source of beauty. All right. Now, nod your head if you think that you understand. You can enjoy a cookie. It can be, um, you can, it can be aesthetically pleasing to the eyes. Right? That's the presentation. But it can also be in the art of culinary, the culinary arts, it can be aesthetically pleasing to the taste buds. And But what you are actually being pleased by are the communicable attributes coming to you from the throne room of heaven 
to you through the thing which he has made. So that when you see a sunset, it is pleasing to you because you are getting a little taste of the beauty and the awe of God himself, which is the ultimate source of pleasure and beauty, which is the ultimate source of happiness. You know, the Bible says to see God is to be happy. Well, in this life, we can see God in a sense in, in, through a mirror dimly through the things that he has made. And, and I would submit to you that that's what we mean when we say beautiful. It's beautiful. It's pleasing to me. So a beautiful song is going to do what? It's going to sound like God in a sense. It's going to communicate certain true and good attributes of God. Same thing with a good piece of art. Okay? So I'm gonna, we're going to illustrate this in a, in a second. I think it's going to make a lot more sense to you. Um, <clears throat> think about this way. Think of J.R.R. Tolkien's The, the uh, Lord of the Rings. You, y'all have all read that, I think, mm-hmm. a few years ago. Um, one of his artistic creations is The Hobbit Shire. Are you all familiar with The Hobbit Shire? Mm-hmm. It's been painted. People have actually created their own Hobbit Shire. So he created a, a, a work of art with writing, and that, wor- that, that writing images a shire, and that shire evokes certain feelings in you. Certain, uh, you find pleasure in those feelings being evoked in you. Um, the shire is beautiful, right? But, it, but is it beautiful like a live oak or like a maple tree? Yeah, it, it's, is it beautiful like a, the Colorado Rockies? Or is it more beautiful like a quaint little cottage in the woods with, a, with, with uh, smoke coming out of the chimney? It's like that. So what are the communicable attributes of God that are being passed from the throne room of God through the pen of J.R.R. Tolkien into the book and into your mind creating pleasure? What are the communicable attributes that you are enjoying through reading of The Hobbit Shire or watching the movie? Benjamin. Comfort. Comfort. Is that one of the... Is God comforting? Yes. That, yes. And nature communicates that God is comforting in various ways, right? A, a, a pile of leaves, right? A fluffy white lamb, the Hobbitshire, all right? Good. The Hobbitshire evokes uh, pleasure because it, it reminds us of the warm affection and the nurturing qualities of God. And to be nurtured by God is to be happy. And so to have a little taste of that, even, in, even through reading of the Hobbitshire, is to have a little taste of happiness. Make sense? Now, what if you're not a Christian and you don't believe in God? Well, you can get a little taste of happiness, but you're not giving him the credit for it. So you gobble up those cookies and you eat them like a glutton because you're not really enjoying God through the cookie. You're enjoying the gifts of God while denying the creator himself. It's kind of deep stuff, right? All right. But it's definitely worth thinking about. Have you ever seen the painting by Norman Rockwell of the Thanksgiving dinner with the mom bringing the turkey out and all the kids happy all around the table? It's the same as the Hobbitshire. It, it evokes, it, it demonstrates or communicates the attributes of God's warmth and affection and his care. Right? But what about the Grand Canyon? What communicable attributes pass through the Grand Canyon into your eyes? We can see God through the things which are made. What attributes of God do we see when we see the Grand Canyon? Warmth? Cuddliness, nurture. I mean, there definitely is warmth. But it's an intense, (laughs) scorching heat. Yes? His greatness. His His power. Power. Because it was made by the flood. 
Yeah. Gigantic thing. His, his terror, his wrath. You can say, but why would it be pleasing for us to, to experience, even in a small way, God's terror and his awe? Because we respect it. We respect it? Well, yeah, but why do people like to jump out of, of airplanes? Why do people like to surf giant tidal waves? Because there is a pleasure in getting close to the flame, but not being burned. There's a pleasure in the experience of awe, while also at the same time experiencing comfort and nurture. Yeah. To be in the, in the whirlwind, or to be in the consuming fire of God, yet to be nurtured like a hobbit in the shire, is a, higher, is a greater aspect of pleasure. You understand what I mean? Right? Uh, Adeline. But if you don't believe in God, then you come up with the idea that it was made by a little waterfall. Yeah, if you don't believe in God and you believe in evolutionary theory or you hate God, you're going to refuse to look through the Grand Canyon and see God. Rather, you're going to see the autonomous work of random chance or nature and not give glory to God. But you're still going to get to experience that all. You're still going to build a a uh, national park there and spend tons of money to preserve it because you want people to have that pleasure, but you won't give God the credit because you're a rebel. Good. You are starting to think in in the right way. You're starting to think in the right way. Have you ever seen that ship of the disciples on the massive storms of the Sea of Galilee? It's a painting by Rembrandt. And it shows a little boat and it's storm tossed. And there's a little bit of light on the boat, but it's very dark and the waves are massive. He's creating, he's evoking the feelings of terror and awe, but he's also reminding you of God's care and concern in the midst of the sea. And so you can, you can if you know art, you can enjoy that work of art and find pleasure in the visual um, cues that he gives you through the painting. Make sense? Mm-hmm. All right, so now let's think about it in this sense. I'm going to give you some bad examples. There was a, a play, Pastor Stewart was telling me about this one, called Einstein at the Beach. And it was an eight-hour play. And uh, that's a long time. I can hardly watch a two-and-a-half-hour movie, much less an eight-hour play. And the eight-hour play was a series of randomness. Random lights flashing and noises going off. And the people sat in there after paying large sums of money. They sat <clears throat> entranced in the beauty. It's so avant-garde. It's so edgy, so bold, so brave. But in reality, you could imagine no one was actually enjoying it because it was random. What attributes can God communicate through art? One is order, right? He can communicate order. Um, but in this particular play, they were communicating chaos and randomness. And chaos and randomness, is that beautiful? No. no, not like order, not like order. But they all sat there in the play pretending to enjoy it. Why? To rebel, that's right, because it serves their God. Now, do you think there's a type of music you can make and listen to which would serve rebellion rather than God? If there's a play that can do it, could you do it with music? Could music be aesthetically rebellious and objectively ugly and be serving your rebellious heart and making you happy because it's expressing your rebellion instead of expressing your pleasure from God? You can see how it's true in music as well. It's not just a matter of taste. You can have music that is aesthetically disordered and rebellious. 
right? You know, in fact, when jazz first came out, it was very much like that. It was sort of evolutionary and chaotic. And it was a cacophony of chaos that most people couldn't stand to listen to it. It gave no pleasure because it wasn't beautiful, because it, it didn't communicate the attributes of order or harmony or symmetry or moderation. But eventually people wanted to enjoy it and the market kicked in and the demands of people. Eventually, our, um, jazz began to grow and to gain some order. And so now you can actually go to college and study jazz and it's almost like you're studying classical composers. There's time signatures and there's scales and all the musicians will play a different part, but it, it comes together in a beautiful whole. You see what I mean? Um, <clears throat> Now, when we talk about something coming together into a beautiful whole, um, does anyone know what attributes of God that communicates? The Trinity. The Trinity. Are you serious? Did I tell you that already? Man, that was good. That was smart. Exactly, yeah. The Trinity is three and one. Unity in diversity. So a tri-unity. Trinity. So when unity and diversity is communicated... Through nature, it's beautiful. It's another attribute of God. So if, if you think about a beautiful painting of a canyon, and, uh, and there's several famous paintings of canyons out there, but if the painting has unique aspects all around it, like a, a beautifully done cactus or a donkey, a burro climbing up the side of the canyon, and the sun is peeking out in the distance, you see all of this diversity and all of these particular interesting things. But when you step back from the painting, what you see is an image of a canyon that provokes awe. Okay? That's a unity and a diversity, and that's what makes some things pleasing. Make sense? Think about um, uh, your outfit, for example. Think about your outfit. Think about a good outfit. Girls, y'all want to help us with this? What makes... For a good outfit. What makes one outfit beautiful and another outfit not beautiful? Is it a matter of taste? Whether or not no, people that say that are being in rebellion. If there's an objective standard and some outfits are more beautiful than others. One of the aspects I would argue is unity and diversity. So what would be some unity and diversity in, uh, in a, a good outfit? Adeline, I thought you were about to say something. Would the colors want to match? Yeah. So that's unity, right? But you, but would you might maybe want to have some delicate touches like a tie or a bow or a piece of jewelry here for a little bit of diversity? But when you step back and you consider the whole outfit, it works. But if someone's wanting to dress in rebellion, what will they do? They will usually, they will usually over or under dress. They will either emphasize the unity or they will emphasize the diversity. So instead of one nice bracelet in moderation, because is moderation one of the aspects of God? Yes. And if you don't have moderation in art, eventually it becomes ugly. In art, you need a little touch here, a little touch there. All one color is not pretty, right? That's like modern art. You have to have moderation because God's law is moderation. So you have one nice bracelet which accents the whole but when someone wants to signal rebellion they will have a ton of bracelets no offense and some of y'all everybody was 12 at some point so no offense but you have 
all these bracelets because you're signaling, you're signaling a form of rebellion. Right? Because you're going against the, the idea of moderation and you're also going against the idea that the parts together make up a beautiful whole. Okay? Um, what about when someone uh, covers their body in tattoos? It's a similar thing, isn't it? It's a very similar thing. Right? <clears throat> um, what about a well-crafted piece of furniture? Would it just be a block of wood? No. It would, it would have some unique touches, some pretty handles, right? It might have some carvings in it. But overall, it's going to be a unified piece of furniture. No, you wouldn't want a, a half dresser, half bunk bed necessarily. Or if maybe you do want it for practical purposes because your room is really small, but no one looks at that and says, whoa, that's a beautiful piece of furniture. It's not there for aesthetic purposes. It's there because you have three boys and they just need to be crammed in a room, right? All right, good. Now, what about the best songs? What are, what are the best songs, most beautiful songs? Yeah, but in the, in the idea, I'm talking about the standard now of unity and diversity. Um, the best songs have little touches. You can, the best songs, you could listen to it and you could be like, listen to that bass. And the bass is doing, or listen to the, the, that hi-hat work, right? Or listen to the melody of that, of that trombone and how it, it goes along with, it fits with the cellos. So you have all this diversity, diversity of instruments, and, and, and even diversity of notes being played, but they come together in a beautiful whole. You have unity and diversity, which is why classical music is objectively more beautiful than um, pop music, pop, modern pop music. Because in modern pop music, they are taking out the diversity and, and, and hemming in on the unity. That's why they have compressors where everything's the same volume. The guitar no longer picks out notes, but just has distortion and, and uh, swings, zoom, one, one loud cacophony of sound because it's taking out the diversity. But as you swing over into other forms of, of modern music, you might have so much diversity that it's chaos, like sometimes prog rock can be, or math rock. They swing to unity or they swing to diversity. But the most beautiful music captures both of those in a perfect balance with moderation. And you're like, oh, now that's a song I can get to. Like, so it'll have like a melody that you can catch on to and all the other little parts serve that particular melody. And very oftentimes those are some of the biggest hits because they're the most pleasing to people because they communicate the attributes of unity and diversity um, from God, right? <laughs> but what are moderns doing? Are y'all still listening? What are they actually up to when they mess with these aspects of music? Idolatry. They're, they're idol, idolatry, yes, but they're rebelling. They're aesthetically rebelling. That's right. We're aesthetic beings. They don't just rebel in the area of truth and goodness, right? They also rebel in the area of beauty, of aesthetics. I'll give you another example. John Cage. Um, he had a, a, a piece, an orchestra piece, where he sat down at the piano and he um, played nothing for over four minutes. And the crowd became incredibly angry as he walked off the stage. A little bit later, he came back and he preached to them the significance of his act. And he said to them, you are the music. You're sneezing and you're coughing, you're shuffling around. You are the music. I mean, do you see how... And then they were like, yes, give that man an award. Because he artistically conveyed 
not the beauty of God and the ca- characteristics of God, he artistically conveyed what? The, beauty of man. the rebellion of man. And they're willing to pay for that. Even though if they were honest, they would say that was crappy. Right? That was one pile of horse manure. And I didn't enjoy that for a minute. That's why I screamed at him. But then when he explained that this is a perfect artistic rendering of my God hatred, oh, okay, now that's good. Thank you for serving my God, which is me. There's an, an, another story I heard of the Christmas Carol. Have you ever seen the play of the Christmas Carol? Right? Well, what they did is they took all the scenes of the Christmas Carol and they put them on, on cards, so like a deck of cards. And then they randomly chose a card from the deck and acted out that particular part of the play. So the ghost of Christmas future is being acted out. And, every, and there were several sets on the same stage. And each, each group picked a card and they acted out their random scene, randomized scene, while the audience watched. Now, do you think that would have been pleasing? No. no. But you see, what worldview is that conveying? That beauty comes from chaos. That order comes from randomness. What worldview is that? It's the, it's the evolutionary worldview, exactly. And so while everyone, if they were honest with themselves, would say, that was the worst thing I have ever seen, and we are all now dumber and more miserable for having seen it, they're going to sit there and pretend in their rebellion with their, with their grant money from the federal government stolen from our, us and our neighbors and pretend like that was beautiful art, right? With their blue hair. But it's not beautiful art. It's not beautiful art. It's a signal of rebellion. In um, J.R.R. Tolkien, he, he created, of course, he used mythology and lore to create the, um, the elves, right? To create the elves and, and, to, and to describe their, their, um, you know, their aesthetic appeal. And if you saw the movie, they're, like, they're beautiful. They're larger than life. Um, their skin is perfect, right? Um, all of those things. <laughs> but then he also created the orcs. But what are orcs? They're ugly, right? They're dirty, they're slimy, they're stinky. But what is an orc? Did he create the orcs? How were the orcs created in the book? Can you remember? They were twisted and tortured elves. So when you torture an elf, it becomes an orc. You see, and that's the thing with people in rebellion against God's standards of truth, goodness, and beauty. They can't create beauty themselves. They can't even rebel without God's help. They have to take an elf and they have to torture it and, and, and turn it into an orc. They have to take the Christmas carol and randomize its scenes. They have to take beautiful music with moderation, with um, melody and harmony and, and a little bit of dissonance and, and consonance with a narrative arc and unity and, and diversity, and they have to twist it and turn it into orc music. Yeah! Orc music! Now, of course, you can't turn music or art or drama or theater or writing or poetry or drawing, you can't turn it into too much of an orc if you want to get paid. You see what I mean? Because not everyone is as enamored and impressed with your self-expression of your own rebellion. They, everyone still wants to enjoy a little cookie every once in a while. You know, you don't want to orc cookie. 
right? No one wants to eat an orc cookie. We still want you, okay, and we're glad you're expressing yourself. You know, put some blue sprinkles on the cookie, but don't make it with vegetable oil or don't make it with something nasty or put raisins in it. Don't turn this cookie into an orc because I want to eat it and I want to taste. I want to have a, a little bit of pleasure, you know, but we can agree that God's out of the picture on this. You see, and that's what a lot of people, they do. They do with music, but here's the thing. They can't make music that's too orcish because no one will like it. So they have to make it a little orcish, a little bit of nasty screamo stuff that's chaos and whatnot, but mix it, mix it with beautiful melodies, mix it with some symmetry, some harmony. And, and there can be some good in that because I don't, I think as an artist, you want to depict, sometimes you want to depict an orc. You see what I mean? Like Tolkien created an orc. So you want to have ugly, God creates ugly things. So you might want some screamo occasionally, but you need to, you have to make sure you, you know what you're doing. I'm putting an orc in this song for a particular purpose, you know, to, to create a narrative arc, to cause a conflict. You know, I'm writing a story and there's a nasty villain. I have a Voldemort in my story. He's ugly. He's mean. He's nasty. He's an orc, but I have him in there so that I can demonstrate God's justice, maybe, right? You know, that you, you have to, you put in the orcs for a, a purpose. Whereas with evolutionary rebels, they're misunderstood. They're not just misunderstood, no. no I mean, think about uh, sodomy. Well, don't think about it, actually, but, but <laughs> sodomy is the orc. It's the orc of sex. That's what it is. It's people becoming orcs. That's exactly what it is. All right. Now, let's move on. There's another characteristic of God that we see in art, and that's infinity. Write this down, infinity. Have you ever sat on the beach and looked out over the sea and just been sort of mesmerized? It's like, it's beautiful. It's attractive. But why, though? It's because, and this is what Christians have theorized over the centuries, they've theorized that it, that it is communicating the attribute of infinity. Of course, it can't actually communicate infinity because we're finite creatures and creation is finite. But you get a little taste of infinity when you look out the ocean with no horizon. Make sense? So sometimes things are beautiful because they communicate the attribute of God we call infinity. Like an infinity pool. You ever seen an infinity pool? Where the pool, the edge collapses, goes down and and you look out over the edge and you see the ocean. You're like, man, that is a beautiful pool. That is sweet. Right? That is cool. It gives you a sense of awe, even swimming in it. You're like, wow, I'm swimming in the open sea. And I've, I've been way out at the open sea and swam in the open sea. And you are. It's a pleasurable experience because you're filled with a sense of terror and awe. You're like, you're close to, the, you're close to infinity. But then you start to think about the sharks, you know, 100 feet down, and you get back in the boat real quick. <laughs> you just want a little. I just want to walk on the water for a second. Just a second. Just a second, Jesus. That's right. Another one is symmetry. This is another one is symmetry. So just to review, some of the communicable attributes of God that come through His creation are unity and diversity, order, nurture and comfort, terror and awe, infinity, and then uh, symmetry. Symmetry. You know, it, that images God's justice and His, and His order. Moderation. Now, I've, I've kind of riffed on moderation already. But good art has moderation. A a culinary artist doesn't usually make a giant pile of slop. Why is a giant pile of slop not aesthetically pleasing? 
to the, to the eyes. Why is presentation bad? You should, you should be able to tell me right now. You're slop critics. Huh? It's an orc. Yes, it's an orc. It's a, it is like a, a vegan who takes all the beautiful uh, vegetables that God has created and blends them up into a yellow blender and turns it into a vomit-looking thing. Like, why would you just orc the vegetables? Right? Like, I don't want the variety of the orange and the banana. I want a giant pile of blended vegan orc juice. That's not what I want. It turns it into something ugly. But why is a pile of slop not as beautifully aesthetic as a culinary artist separating things on the plate? You should be able to tell me right now because it it lacks what? It lacks unity and diversity. That's what you're meaning when you say variety. What else is it lacking though? Look at, your, look at the list that I've already given you. It's lacking moderation. That's right. Which images God's law and his justice. It's lacking moderation. Right? And, and that's why kids usually eat piles of slop because they're not as, their culinary tastes aren't yet as sophisticated. But usually someone that enjoys good food doesn't want their food to touch. You, don't, you want unity and diversity, but you also want the right wine with the right steak. You want there to be a, 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 a hole to it. And you want moderation. Just why it's not beautiful to wear 100 bracelets or to have 25 earrings because it lacks moderation. What's beautiful, what's beautiful is to have a few delicate touches that work to accentuate the whole. All right? And this is not, we're not just making this stuff up. There is absolute standards of truth, goodness, and beauty. Now, you might, it, remember, sometimes you want to create an orc in your art. But if you're going to create an orc in your outfit, like on Halloween, or in a song, Screamo, or in a book, Voldemort, if you're going to torture an elf and create an orc, you do it to the glory of God. And you do it to demonstrate the communicable attributes of justice and wrath. You do it on purpose. You've got to think about these things. Otherwise, you're just going to be swallowing the rebellious art of orcs. Right? Another one is um, balance. Balance. You can think about a beautiful photograph. What's one of the things that makes a photograph beautiful? Contrast. Well, yes, contrast. But if you have a tree, for example, a big giant tree in the center of a field, and you want to position a family, all right? No, let's say let's say a a, a beach coastline with the horizon stretching out in the distance, conveying the sense of infinity. Now you want to stand in front of that beach scene for your selfie, right? Because you want to communicate through that photograph the sense of infinity. And when you look at it, you're like, oh, the image, the picture just doesn't do it justice. Because it doesn't, a picture doesn't evoke the communicable attribute of infinity as much as being there in person does, right? But then when you want to be on the edge of infinity, but you want to stand right on the edge, right? But you also, you don't normally want to put yourself right in the center of the photograph, do you? Because to put yourself in the center of the photograph takes away from the beauty of the photograph because you're taking away from what? You're taking away from the infinity. The communicable attribute of infinity points to God. So oftentimes you will position yourself where in the photograph? To the three-quarter rule. But now you don't go all the way to the edge because then you're no longer conveying balance and order and symmetry. So you use the three-quarter rule. 
So you get on the three on one quarter here or three quarter there, so that you can have a little bit of the balance and order, but also a little bit of the infinity. You see, you're learning how to be uh, art critics, right? Because you're learning the standards of beauty. That's very important. Um, all right. <clears throat> That's good. So now just a little just to review a little bit, if you gain pleasure, aesthetic pleasure, which is basically seeing, tasting, touching, smelling, sensing beauty through the things which are made. You're seeing God mediated. You know the word mediated like a middleman, mediated through his creation. And that makes us happy, doesn't it? That makes us happy. Now, I'm much more happy with a beautifully uh, presented meal from a, a professional chef. That gives me much more pleasure than a pile of slop. But, you know, we, can, we don't get to, we're not living in a fantasy world. We don't get to live in pleasure all the time. Sometimes we have to eat our slop because we don't have enough money, right? That's okay. We can also enjoy slop because even slop has some aspects of it which are okay, right? It's okay. So we can't, you know, we're not trying to be snobs here. But if I am, I, I get a little bit of pleasure from enjoying a beautiful meal or beautiful song, a Donald Fagan song, of course, um, <clears throat> with all the perfect proportion and balance and unity and diversity. Yes. Right, Benjamin? <laughs> um, but if you wanted, if you're getting a little bit of pleasure from the mediated beauty of God through his creation, just imagine if you could experience, sense, see God unmediated. What do you think that would be like? It would be absolute, perfect happiness and pleasure. That's exactly right. That's why the Bible says, blessed are those who see God. And right now we only see Him through a mirror dimly, mediated through His, His creation and through His Word and through one another. But one day, if you are a Christian, you will no longer walk by faith, but you will walk by sight and you will see him as he is, unmediated. You won't just see the awe of the Grand Canyon and see him through it. You will see the awe of God himself. And you won't just see the charming, nurturing nostalgia and warmth of the Hobbitshire, but you will see and experience the warmth of God directly. That's something. Can you even imagine that? We can't imagine it because even our imaginations are, are created by the world which he has shown to us. Our imaginations come, are part of the creation. So we can't see this unmediated God. We can't sense it. But we can know at least through the Bible and through our reason that that is ultimate pleasure and joy. That's the reason why we live. All right. Well, that's it for today.